this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. And this is Chris. Welcome to the making and the remaking of Codependent Mind. We're very excited to have Chris talking with us today. He's been a longtime listener who we've heard from before on various platforms, has a story that has a lot of parallels with Brian. So it's, it was really kind of fascinating to hear more about it. And we think it's going to be super valuable for a lot of people as they think about their trajectory as well. So welcome, Chris. You know, thank you off the top for being part of this community and part of this conversation. Yeah, thank you guys uh, so much. If I can share just a quick little story, and I came upon this idea the other day, and we're going to get into my story, obviously, uh, in the timelines of things, but there was a time in between my first and second marriage where I spent a lot of alone time and in a little bit of isolation. So thanks to be in her podcast sharing with the isolation, because I can relate to that. But I spent a number of uh, nights, days watching the TV show Friends. And I felt like they were my friends and I was listening to them and I could relate to each one of them and I could, you know, relate to, oh, I feel a little bit like Chandler in this way and Joey in this way. And I felt like those were my, they were my friends because I was in isolation. And I want to say off the top, thank you both for this podcast because I feel like in a way, while I'm doing my work, I, I usually listen to stuff. And when I found you guys, you, in, in essence, became my friends because you were in the room with me. I could listen to your sharing. And it's been invaluable to me because it's given me new language, giving me new understanding. So I just want to say right off the hop, it feels like you guys are already my friends. And I've only just heard you for real for the first time now. So thank you for having me as part of your podcast. And I look forward to the sharing and the continued growth of the, the podcast. Great. Thank you so much. For I love that. that. They were all friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I already feel that too. Yeah. Great. So in terms of your story, I don't want to bear the lead yep. because I think what a lot of people who are listening and a lot of people struggle with codependency, you are in a place where a lot of people would like to be in that you are in a satisfying, happy, healthy relationship. 100%. Yeah. Well, I'm in a great, great mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual space right now. I wake up every day and think, thank goodness that I've made this transition in my life to become on the other side of the recovery component as opposed to being on the other side of suffering and isolation and loneliness and guilt and shame and all those things that come along with being in the muck, so to speak. <laughs> you know, we certainly want to hear about your past experiences and, and what brought you here, but we want to make sure that we have enough time to talk about your current relationship and, and your current situation in life, because I know a lot of people will be curious about that. Yes, um, yes. Both how you how you got there and how you, how you're sustaining it in the face of what I'm sure is still some some lingering challenges. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's lingering challenges on the daily. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we'll go back to the beginning as, as we often do. If you want to say a little bit about your childhood, though, in terms of what kind of set you up to go down the path of codependency. Yeah, absolutely. I, w I can say that it started back when I was a, a, a three-year-old little boy who uh, had a lot of a lot of energy and there was a little a small story about when I had my cousin over and he would have been a year older than me he would have been four years old I was three we lived uh, in a rural area and there was a lot of open fields emptiness and I had asked my dad if, if we could use his golf clubs three years old what are we gonna do we can't get into that much trouble we're not you know Tiger Woods or anything like that but I remember being in out in this field and I asked my cousin we'll call him Jay and I, I like how you guys use the initials of things, so we'll stick with that. So my cousin Jay, I said, Jay, you out of the way? He said, yep. So I, I did a backswing of the golf club, hit him in the face, busted up his cheek. He went running away. I went running away. I went into the house, didn't know what was going on. I was really concerned for my cousin. 
And unfortunately, I was spanked by my mother. And at that point, I was so confused as to why I was getting spanked for something that was sincerely an accident. But ever since that point, I had a fear of my mother based on how she looked, how she spoke. And I basically started going into a making sure I was a quote unquote good boy or else I was going to get spanked because I didn't know when or if it was ever going to be coming because I felt like I did nothing wrong. But I hear I was getting disciplined. And was that fear founded as you move forward through your childhood? Was, yes. Was... So moving forward through my childhood and going through elementary school, uh, I always I always felt very on edge, very alone. Um, I do have a sibling. He's seven years younger than me. So the relatability with him and hanging out with him just was never really there. So I spent a lot of time alone. Um, I was a very athletic child and teenager. I played competitive hockey, competitive baseball. Uh, my dad was my coach for all those years. And I just felt like it didn't matter what I did. I just, I could never get them to be happy with my performance, whether it was my grades, my mother would ask, why did you only get a B or why didn't you study enough? And there are a lot of why, 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 but it wasn't out of a curiosity. It was from a place of judgment. And I always felt very small, very, what am I, what, what can I do? I'm doing the best that I can, but it just never felt like it was enough. Same thing on the athletic side. I played hockey, played baseball, and it was, I, I was, I would say fairly talented. And I was always probably one of the highest goal scorers on the team for hockey. And I was a pretty you know, I had a good strong arm for pitching in baseball, but I would often get, why did you pass the puck? Why did you throw that pitch? And again, it was from a judgment place as opposed to curiosity. So I always felt whatever I was doing, didn't matter where, when, how, it just was never enough. And I couldn't measure up to them in terms of what they were looking for from me. And there was never any emotion around it other than the feeling of a judgment. So this is a thing we've heard from a number of people, the messages that they're getting from their environment. And unfortunately, often from their parents, their primary caregivers, was the sense that you're not good enough for some reason. Like you don't deserve care and attention mm -hmm. for who you are. And the, the answer to that is taking on this role of performance to where everything you do you're assuming is being scrutinized rather than doing it for yourself. It definitely became performance-based because everything was was a measure of sorts as opposed to just saying that was great. It was like that was okay or that was good or it could be better as opposed to that was great. There are other elements perhaps too in your, your childhood, I, I think you brought up that would have contributed to this kind of sense of unease that you felt throughout your childhood, some violence and, and some instability. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that kind of brings me, you know, kind of going backwards again into my youth. Uh, my parents had um, some struggles with their relationship. My dad had an infidelity at such a young age. I remember going to a, a baseball friend's house after, after a game or practice, I can't recall, but we had gone there to go for, for a swim. They, they had an in-ground pool. A bunch of the kids were there. I decided to go inside and I walked in on my, my father being inappropriate with another woman. I was very confused by that. And I was put in that position of do I tell my mom? Do I do I say something to my dad? So I just went again, that isolation really felt very lonely, very alone. And I was kind of, I felt trapped in a way because I didn't know how to navigate this. I was a six-year-old boy. I didn't know what to do. And not long after that, uh, my parents did separate for approximately six months. And during that time, I recall being uh, with my mom, living with my mom. And my dad had come over to uh, where we were staying at the time. And my mother had put me in a closet and said, stay there. Uh, don't come out until I come and get you. And I could hear that there was definitely some physical and verbal abuse going on um, in the upper level of where uh, we were living. I was downstairs in like a, a closet 
closet. And when when she came out to get me, there was no explanation as to what happened, why it happened, uh, no comforting, no coddling, no explanation. I felt, again, very confused, very alone. And through a conversation with my mom, she did reflect back to me that the very first thing that I was concerned about was whether or not my dad was going to still be my coach as opposed to, is he still going to be my dad? And that, again, re retelling stories or rewriting stories has allowed me to go back and, and really look at the value of what that relationship was like with my dad. And still to this day, very day, I still see him more as my coach than I do see him as my father because there was no emotional comfort anywhere along the journey of my dad, nor was there any emotional comfort or sharing with my mom. There was, there's a lot more packaged into that relationship because at that point, when she took me out, I, I guess, further enhanced my codependency and caretaking of her because now I felt like I needed to protect her at, at such a young age with confusion. Uh, that's all I wanted to do was make sure that whatever I did, I did not want to upset my mom. I wanted to make sure that she was happy taken cared for. And that became my journey up until very recently, where I started making some differences with my relationships with both of my parents by putting some plans into place. And I know we're going to get into unpackaging that too. So a lot of fear, a lot of shame oh, about yes. not, not being good enough, not being able to protect your mother or yourself. And yeah, and we know what that does. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so yeah. So compliance and as you said people pleasing and trying to caretake the people who should be caring for you all of this of course not setting you up well i'm sure for yeah no it's almost, almost romantic like, relationship. <laughs> yeah it did not say it did not bode well for for all future relationships and i say that in, in the sense of all future relationships whether they were intimate friend co-worker sports colleagues uh it, it just turned into people pleasing and making sure that everyone was taken care of first and then if there's anything left over, then I would take care of myself. You did get into, though, a romantic relationship, fairly young, a marriage. I did. Yeah. So uh, I did meet my first wife when I was in college. And uh, during that time, uh, our daughter came along rather quickly. I would have been 22 at the time when the conception happened, 23 when our daughter was born. Was this planned? This was not a planned pregnancy at all. And quite honestly, I was given an out at the beginning of it all, but I felt very responsible and uh, again, very codependent that I wasn't going to step away from it. I was going to do the honorable, respectful thing and step into the role of father. But what happened with that relationship is that we literally went into being parents almost immediately. We got engaged within six months of meeting one another. It was my first, my first romantic partner that I'd ever been with, both in terms of physically living with someone and with the first sexual experience with someone and it turned out that I ended up marrying that person. So again, engaged in six months, pregnant six months later, married 10 months after that. So our daughter was part of our wedding. So we literally jumped right into being parents and the codependency train just kept right on rolling with me, my working upwards of three jobs to support the family and just taking care of whatever I possibly could, including my first wife. She was very, I can look back and say that she was very challenging, very demanding, very, we've used, you guys have used the word narcissistic often. And I can definitely say that that holds true even to this day with who she is and how the relationship unfolded with that. So we were together for 12 years. Uh, there was another child that came along. Um, there's five years difference between my uh, daughter and then my son. And I think one of the things that I want to speak to in terms of the codependency is that during the conception of our son, it was definitely planned and it took us nearly a year 
to actually conceive and sex became all about performance it was with a purpose and it was to get pregnant and month after month after month that went by the performance wasn't there i felt i was inadequate it was my response or my fault that things were happening so i just kept going further and further down into a spiral of again not being enough and that sexual component and that performance-based idea of sex did definitely carry through into multiple relationships including my current relationship wow this sounds very familiar <laughs> Except for <laughs> take out the child part of it. Um, that was my first marriage almost completely, including the trajectory and the amount of time uh, it took for you to get engaged. And did you find their love bombing and, and, and narcissistic traits that we've described? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that was that was right from the get go. Like, oh, you're the you're the best I've ever been. Yeah, you're, you're the best person. And I, I just can't wait to share my life with you. And I've never had this kind of experience before. So yeah, definitely a lot of a good praise that made me feel good. But it was definitely, I could feel an underhandedness to some of it. Because mm -hmm. as our relationship went along, I could see her controlling behaviors and the way that she was acting was very similar to how my mother was treating me. So I basically mm -hmm. I kind of married my mother in a sense. And how did that relationship end? I would say that it ended amicably only because I was very agreeable to a lot of the things that were going on. It was having two kids in the picture. She was a stay-at-home mom for a fair amount, hence me working a lot of the jobs that I did. But as our son, again, that was our second child, uh, started entering into the school age years, she started going to work. She found a career uh, I basically financed her way through schooling to become uh, a teacher. She graduated from that, started teaching, found a whole new set of friends, and her life started going in a different direction that did not include me. And I think she really enjoyed that freedom. So thinking back to it, she had her kids, she had her career, and she had a codependent husband that was not actually there for her in the capacity that she needed it to be. So we decided to say, I can't make you happy. You can't make me happy. We want to be happy. Let's go our separate ways. And so we separated or divorced amicably, but I felt very uh, empty and alone because for the first year we, we tried doing joint custody and then ultimately the kids ended up living with her, which led to child support and me working three jobs for a, a number of years after that and started building resentment and anger. And again, I, I spent a lot of time watching friends to try to just have some escapism to be able to get me through it. I did go through depression. I did go on medication for a number of years to help me through that. And all through that time, we maintained, and I say we, that's my first wife, we'll call her T. T maintained a friendship for the sake of being co-parents and trying to show that we could do this amicably. I've only, within the last year, year and a half found out that there was so much underhandedness going on while the kids were living with her that I no longer have a relationship with my kids. We say Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, and that's the extent of our relationship now because of all the storytelling that was told to the kids about me as to why we are not together. So it, it ended amicably, but it's definitely not in a place of friendliness at, at uh, today's uh, mark. So you say it ended am amicably. Are you still holding to that story? That it was I'm, amicable. I, I'm I am letting that one go because it really wasn't. I was totally I was totally being codependent because I didn't want to upset her. I didn't want to lose seeing my kids. I was not happy. Uh, I think if anything, she was happy because she was living the life that she wanted and she got basically what she wanted out of everything, which was her kids, her career, and basically being financially supported by me. So I can't say that I, if there was anything amicable about it looking back. I've definitely rewritten that story. Yeah. So at the time, what would you say you took out of that relationship? Because you mentioned something about a transition from there into 
looking for someone different? What exactly, how did you see her? That what, what was the different you were looking for? I was looking for someone that didn't have so much control over every little thing, like every microscopic thing between how the kids were raised, what they ate, what they wore, what sports they played or what activities they did, what friends they had, what jobs I had, what friends I had, what I wore, what I drove, mm -hmm. right down to what color of the walls we should be painting. Uh, so many things that happened in that relationship where I literally just on a silver platter said, here's all of my power, take it. I don't have any agency in this relationship whatsoever. So coming out of it, I now was on my own two feet. I was on my own. Definitely wanted to be in a relationship, but it did not want to be in a relationship where I felt so small, unseen, unheard, because up to that point, I had already had an entire childhood of that. And now 12 years of a marriage of that. So I was looking to make a transition and, and flip the script on how life was going to go moving forward. And you were going to do that by choosing someone different, but not informed by what was happening really in your first relationship. I mean, you right. knew you didn't want that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was more of like, I know what I don't want. So if I know what I don't want, that means I must know what I want. So mm -hmm. when I did start seeking out another person, I knew I didn't want someone who was controlling. I wanted someone that had a, a full-time job, was responsible. I was looking for someone that didn't have such a manipulative, narcissistic, controlling behavior and didn't, um, how can I say, didn't really understand me in the sense that they, they didn't even know themselves enough that they could just be more of a surface person so that I could just keep everything on the surface and keep my codependency kind of covert and unseen and they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognize it or understand it. And I could just keep going along in my safe way, even though it wasn't a safe place to be in for me because I still carried that guilt and shame of what I had gone through for you know, 30 some odd years. Would you have recognized it as codependency at the time? Not that you would have used the word, but how much of your behaviors did you recognize at the time? Yeah, I would say if anything that I, I, I recognize my giving away of my power. The word codependency didn't come in until during the second relationship. But yeah, I just, I felt very powerless, very alone, very, I didn't have, I had an opinion, but it didn't matter. Just a quick little side story. During those years after the relationship with T broke up, the kids were living with her and I would often get a phone call or a message saying, okay, I need you to get on board with this. This is what I'm going to do as a parent, or this is what I'm going to make the decision for, for the kids. I need you to get on board with this. Right. And I knew to try and fight or go against that was completely useless. It, it would just drain you of energy. So I would just say, sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. And I would literally carry forth anything that she decided, even though it didn't sit well with me because I knew the fight against it was a harder battle than the battle of just accepting that I didn't agree with something. So again, just literally giving over that power. So I was coming into that second relationship. It was looking for someone that didn't hold that kind of power. And how did that go? It did not go all that great. Uh, the relationship started off, it was a lot of fun. I met someone that um, was from my workplace, although we didn't work together. We were introduced by a mutual friend. And, and here's where the pattern's going to repeat. We got engaged within six months of meeting one another. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whose idea was that? That was mine because I, I guess I, I really wanted to be in a relationship. I wanted to have, I was, I was seeking safety and comfort and companionship and togetherness and to be able to share something with someone that could get to a level of intimacy of knowing that I could be vulnerable and open and safe. And I did know enough about myself at that point that I was looking for someone to get together with. But the way it started off was six months of partying, 
um, heavy drinking. Turned out she was an alcoholic. She had been drinking very heavily for about five years. Or at the time that we met, her son would have been 12 years old. And I, I wasn't ready to step necessarily into a step parent role, but it was part of the package. And I, I embraced it. But the relationship went really south really fast because the alcohol became such a big factor to the point where um, she decided to try and commit suicide with pills and alcohol. Um, not too long after our engagement, she just had so much shame and guilt for her, <clears throat> excuse me, for her way of being that I ended, like literally went home one day from work, found her laying on the bed. She also had problems with bulimia and anorexia and eating disorder. So there was a lot going on in there. But honestly, what it what it did for me is it, it, it appealed to my, I guess, heroic saving. I can help this person. I can fix this person. I can make myself feel better by helping this person. And here I am failing again because she's trying to off herself. Um, took her to detox. She went and lived in a uh, recovery home for a number of months while I cared for her son. And this was before the the marriage? This is before the marriage. This is during the, during the engagement period, but not during the marriage. So almost under a year. Yes. This is where it's gone to. Yes, that's correct. And that's correct. And one of the conditions of us actually getting married was that she had to be sober and attending an AA meeting. And I started putting, so I started taking on the control and I became more of the dominant person in the relationship. So it was almost like I went from being a controlled person in my first relationship to wanting something, nothing like that whatsoever. So I went the complete polar opposite and found someone who didn't have any, any agency, any backbone. And that person was in need of help. And I was going to be the hero and I could actually make a difference in someone else's life because I could actually stand up and be who I thought I could be, as opposed to being small and nothing, I could be the big and everything. And it just did not work because all I wanted to do was again, be codependent to try and make sure that that person was in a safe environment. There was no drinking going on. We didn't vacation. We didn't go out for dinners. We didn't go anywhere. We literally just worked and stayed at home. And uh, I kind of felt my life kind of shrinking again because I was missing out on living. It wasn't living. It was just surviving. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting transition. So yeah, you had some awareness. You had enough self-awareness to know that you gave up your power and yet you didn't give up your codependency. <laughs> you didn't give yeah. up the behaviors. They just took on a different role. Yeah. Um, the, the, how, how it, the look and feel of it just, just shifted over. Um, and it was during that relationship, uh, M, that was my second wife, we'll, we'll say M, M started attending AA meetings. And at the same time, um, I had discovered while she was in her recovery home, I had discovered Al-Anon and started attending Al-Anon meetings three times a week. And uh, I found acceptance there. I found some friendships there. I found people that could understand and relate to. And I didn't feel so alone. And I didn't feel so powerless anymore because now I'm hearing other people's stories through the sharing at the tables of other people's experiences. And they sounded so familiar to mine. And I, I actually went to a, a one-week retreat to learn about codependency. And it was literally an isolation where there was, I think, five or six of us. It was a co-ed uh, retreat. And there was a lot of sharing of hearing what it was like for, for women and for men and the whole concept codependency and trying to gain strength and agency in the world started to become a little bit more in the forefront of my mind as opposed to putting it to the back of my mind. So I can say that I started to make the turning of my wheel of my, my bus to go in the right direction happened during that one week retreat. Because when I came back from that, I felt different, talked different 
did everything different. And I started going in a different direction, which ultimately led to the demise of that particular relationship or marriage with M because I just wasn't willing to take it anymore that I was powerless. And I, I wanted to start standing on my own two feet to be strong enough in my decisions and knowing that I'm doing things for me as opposed to doing things for everyone else. And that really was the true start of the transition of going from being the codependent to the recovery side. It was during that second marriage. It's interesting because, you know, that's the more classic expression of codependency, your, your second marriage in the literature to M, right? The, the caretaking. Brian has experienced more the, the first one, <laughs> the, the one connect, your first marriage connection with narcissism. But it's interesting, this kind of relationship to power, right? Because what you thought you were doing is moving from a powerless relationship where she had all the control into one where you had all the control because you were the, you know, supposedly the healthy one, the competent one, the one that could keep it together. But really, you didn't have much more power in your second relationship or your first. In both those relationships, you were serving their disorders, mm-hmm. whether it was narcissism or alcoholism, you were shaping your life around their disordered behavior. Definitely. So that that would now put me in three relationships, one with my mom, T and then M. And and, and I was tired. And, and I, 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 can, I can say that in many ways. I was spiritually tired, physically tired. Yeah, just exhausted, just tired all the time. It seems like that must have been a pretty hard time because you had one relationship that went very badly and yep. you decided, oh, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make a different choice. And then that goes badly as well. I mean, how did you kind of process all of that? Well, I didn't process it very well because after the second marriage came to an end, I went back into a depression. I went back onto medication and I, I made probably one of, I wouldn't say one of the biggest mistakes that, I, that I've that i made because I've made a lot. I'm, I'm an imperfect human living this existence, but I turned back to the to the source of my codependency and I went to my mother for help. And what ended up happening, and this happened on the first relationship too, and the second relationship, I got no support other than, oh, you know, just do what you got to do. And I felt, I, I never felt more alone in my life at that point, because the one person that I felt, I felt I could go to, I just got shut down and went back to feeling so incredibly small and alone because the source of the person who I gave my agency to as a child was still holding to this. She's not there for me emotionally. Um, She was there for me um, in a financial perspective. She did fairly well with her career. She has helped me in a financial perspective, but to the extent beyond that, it's the, the relationship has now very strained because I'm seeing, I can see looking back, her response of just do what you got to do was coming from a place of her capacity because she stayed in a relationship with a, a cheating, drinking, gambling husband for far too long. And she didn't have her own agency to be even able to help me. So as a parent, she was actually a codependent and a narcissist as well which is that double one-two punch combination. And I went right back into the lion's den, so to speak, to try and get support, and it wasn't there. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Very hard. Very hard. Very alone. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 did, I did, like I said, I did, I did take the medication, and I just went back to working even harder and even more to avoid everything and everything. We promised people a happy ending. Yes. Is it coming? <laughs> it is. <laughs> So, yeah, this is the love story part. 
And it started with me actually DJing uh, an event at a local uh, coffee shop. And it was a fundraiser for this organization called Save Ojibwe. And Ojibwe is this forest natural preservation park in the area that I live. So I was DJing at this particular event and there was other vendors there doing some other things from a fundraising perspective. And there was this really cute woman working next to me. We're going to call her D. And she was doing an art installation and you know, she caught my attention. I was single. I introduced myself. We had a little bit of, you know, eye contact. I bought her a drink. We had lots of fun and we did what, what, what happens in most uh, modern day things. We became Facebook friends. I sent her a message uh, afterwards and said, hey, it was lovely meeting you. I had a great time getting to know you. Would you like to go for a coffee? And then I waited. And then I waited and then I waited and I waited three years until I actually came across this woman again. She didn't respond to my text, but I was out in Ojibwe Park for a walk deep in the woods and on the path coming towards me is D in this wooded area that we actually met three years earlier for a fundraiser for. And I said, hey, how are you? Nice to see you again. And I totally recognized her right away. She wasn't quite sure who I was because I had put on some weight from, you know, a little bit of drinking, a little bit of eating, unhealthy behaviors. But <clears throat> I said, it was so nice to see you again. Um, enjoy your walk. I didn't want to do anything more than that because it's kind of creepy. We're in the middle of the woods. I didn't want her to get all freaky. So went our separate ways. I got back to the parking lot and thought, you know what? I'm going to message again. So I found that message on Messenger and said, it was nice to see you. Uh, you're looking well. I hope you enjoyed the rest of your walk. And she had been on a walk as well doing a search for, she was looking for her guy. And I was on my walk looking for my woman or I was just going to be single the rest of my life. That, that walk was literally a contemplative walk to go, should I stay single and just live the rest of my life and don't, don't get into any relationships because then I can just take care of myself and not have to worry about anybody. I don't have to have the codependency triggers anymore. But I thought, what the heck? I'm going to send her a message. She responded. We met for coffee and we've been together ever since. Mm -hmm. I so, love nice. that. That's right. the love story. <laughs> it and is. That, and that's that's the the fate of the universe putting us together now we've been together for uh we just celebrated our seventh christmas but we've been together for six years because that meeting that we had was literally just before christmas so yeah we we started dating she was running her own businesses a uh, very successful business in the arts she's an intuitive artist uh, an incredibly talented intuitive artist and i was working uh i had two jobs at the time uh, still two jobs because I did I do enjoy working I, I I do get a lot of satisfaction out of my work and true to my to my pattern within six months of us getting together I was getting the itch to give her a ring to get engaged <laughs> to go down that path again we started talking about it and she said no very firm very direct she says no you are in ring rehab you cannot give me a ring until we get to know each other more. We have to have more life experience. Let's do some travels. We weren't living together yet. So I had someone here who was confident, grounded, not controlling or manipulating, but actually had a good head on her shoulders to be able to know who she was, what she wanted, and could recognize in me very early on some of my codependencies. She could see my blind spots. She knew my shadow side. This woman for lack of a better term, she had her shit together. And that was like, wow, someone who's not trying to manipulate me, but who actually has a, a head on her shoulders, who's very bright, very successful. And it's like, I hit the jackpot. And I was so happy, so excited. 
that that's why I wanted to rush into everything because I finally found what I was looking for and I did not want to let it go. And I wanted to grip and hold on to it. And I thought, wow, am I ever trying to control the situations? And so I was actually being codependent yet again in this relationship right from the outset. So one, I really like D. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I think you would. <laughs> <laughs> we will have to have D on, on our podcast. At some but yes, it sounds terribly exciting as it should be. Yes. Did you have any fear though, or reservations about going into another relationship? Did you have any sense that maybe you were going to bring old patterns in? hundred percent, hundred percent. Cause I even remember very, very early on in, in the relationship saying, saying this to D, you know, if this relationship doesn't work out, it's going to be my fault. And I know it. So I already had that awareness that if this doesn't work out, it's going to be on me. So it was almost like I was kind of cushioning that if it didn't work out, that I already knew why, and it was because I was going. I was going to be bringing back those codependent behaviors of not knowing who 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 I am, not having a groundedness. I lack a lot of empathy. I had no boundaries. There are so many things that were still buried inside of my existence that. I didn't overtly say these things uh, to D until literally a year ago, Christmas. Uh, it finally came out. We had had a lot of fun. We had uh, we had moved in together. We had actually exchanged rings probably about two and a half, three years into our relationship. And it was more of a commitment ring as opposed to an engagement ring. But we knew we wanted to be together. We had developed such a deep mental, spiritual uh, uh, connection. Um, the emotional intimacy didn't come yet. It's there now. We did have some physical challenges in the bedroom because I still had a codependent mind of what sex was. I was it was all performance based, and I had to please the other person, and it wasn't about my pleasure. And we're still dealing with a little bit of that today, so that hasn't completely gone. We are too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it, I think that's part of it. But one of the things that I want to kind of circle back to is that when I first got together with Dee, she was having a bit of a, a health concern, like overworking, putting too much into her job. She was a very independent woman. She had started making some separation from her from her family. I saw here's another person that needs my help. I can help this person. I am a stronger person. I'm a confident person. I know about my codependencies, but because I know these things, I can go in and I can save and I can rescue and I can help. But she didn't need it. But my mind saw that she did. So my first five years of relationship with her was always, again, trying to make sure she was okay first and not me. And she could feel it. And there was a lot of pushback from her saying, I'm okay, I got this. But my confidence level wasn't strong enough to believe her because I was stuck in my ways of thinking that I could actually help and save someone. And it just didn't, it didn't work. (laughs) And that your value only comes from that. Yes. That someone wouldn't want to be with you just for you. It would be because what you can do for them. Yes. And because of the health concerns, concerns, it, it did in fact affect um, her business. She had staff was running the business for her, which was stressful in itself. I could also tell you that COVID really had a big impact into our relationship and our businesses. We we're both self-employed and COVID literally wiped us both out of being able to serve our businesses in any capacity whatsoever. So mm-hmm. that really put us into a little bit of a, a tailspin from a, a work perspective, but it, we can both look back and say that it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise. She was able to pivot her business and now she's she's working as a true artist. She's given up the education side of being a teacher of the arts and now literally an artist. And I've been able to 
take on a couple of new different jobs. But during that time of COVID, we had nothing but each other to entertain ourselves and be with each other. We were in lockdown, couldn't go anywhere. And our relationship went through a, a big roller coaster ride of emotion, physical component, uh, spirituality. Some of it was for a good, but some of it was also for bad to the point where we did have some struggles where we questioned whether we should stay together. Are we hurting each other by staying together or are we helping each other? And it was a, a balancing act because the good was really good, but the bad was really bad. And it was like these really highs and real lows. And it was during that time I sought out a, a life coach who was helping me through some challenges. Uh, I ended up going to see uh, a therapist. So she was helping me through some challenges as well. And those were both great avenues for me to actually seek counsel outside of the relationship. And that really helped me become a little bit more aware of what my contributions were to that relationship and the demise of the lows. You mentioned earlier that you have only somewhat recently shared your codependency, we'll call it, with D. Yes. So you were aware of this really since the demise of, of your second marriage, but it sounds like something that perhaps you were still struggling with in terms of shame and fear about what that revelation would look like. I'm interested in this kind of coming out story because there may be people who are listening who or I guess in the codependency closet who feel that they are codependent, but they don't yep. feel that that's a part of that they can share with people. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to share that part because that truly was the discovery of what the what freedom can come from the admission of being a codependent to another human being. I can tell you that we decided last Christmas to go on a, a trip away just to get away because... <laughs> There's some there's some family issues on both of within both of our families. We just wanted to get away, so we went away. But it was during that that trip away that Dee had said to me, "You know, there's something going on. There's something you're not telling me. I, I just feel it." And again, I, I mentioned to you earlier that she's an intuitive artist, and she truly is an intuitive. She does she does do readings for people, so she's able to see into things at a much deeper level. And she could see me. She could really see me. And at this point, we've been together for five years and she had stayed with me because she saw the good person I am, the kind person I am and through all of my faults, but she could definitely see that there was something that I was hiding. It was something that was holding back our next level relationship, which is why we are not technically married today. There was, there's still that reservation or hesitation. And I literally broke down and said, I, I'm a codependent. I, I see it as a, an addiction to people pleasing and I have a problem, something that I didn't mention earlier, and it's, it's an important part of this story. Going back to my 10-year-old little boy self and my inner child, and this is something that I think is, is very important to the discovery of coming out of the codependency, is to go back and look at that inner child and those origin stories, because it's such a value to know where it started and why things happened. There was another situation with my parents where there was, again, drinking, fighting, verbal, emotional abuse. And at that point, as a little 10 year old boy, I started, I started self-harming. It, it brought me relief. It took me out and I self-harmed all the way up until into my forties. And it was shame, guilt. And, but I would do that as a relief to take me out of my mind because my mind would go into bad directions. So I would do that as a stopgap 
to get me through whatever pain I was feeling. And during this situation at Christmas last year, Dana said, something's going on. She said, are you self-harming again? And uh, the answer was immediately no, because I had stopped self-harming. But I can tell you the urges and the feeling and the pain that I was going through of holding on to this codependent way, the pain was so unbearable that I didn't know if I could go on in this relationship anymore if I didn't make a change in myself. And I didn't know if I could go on with my life without having a change as well. I had had two previous, I'll say loosely based suicide attempts. Uh, they weren't really serious, but they were definitely serious enough that I, I contemplated it and thought about it. And those were after the demise of those two relationships with uh, T and M. And here I am again, having these similar feelings of feeling down, working too much avoidance, and I just couldn't do it anymore. And she called me out on it. And uh, I said, I'm a, I, I have a codependent mind and I want to, I want to fix this. I'm afraid of who I'm going to become because I don't want to go back there. And I'm afraid of losing you in the relationship. So it came out of a fear that I made a decision to, to change my life around and start correcting and healing that codependent mind. And it only came out of an awareness of my own self and my own truth of what that self-harm did to me and what those previous relationships did to, did, did to me. All the toxic, toxicity of my previous relationships had to come to a stop or I was going to continue the pattern. And I did not want to go on that ride anymore. I wanted to get off the bus. And I did. You So you were holding on to all this kind of shame and fear, keeping it from her thinking yes. that that was the only way to, to hold on to her. It was the only way to hold and on. Th and then when you told her, what happened? Well, well, we both had a big sigh of relief because finally all the cards were on the table. There were no more secrets. It was interesting. The place that we were staying, at, it was an Airbnb. We had gone to Quebec. Uh, it was cold. It was winter. But there was a winter storm coming through. So we were literally trapped in this Airbnb. And during this whole conversation, we were holding hands. We were crying. We were saying, we're going to get through this. We're going to figure this out. And it was at that time that we really gave up our, we gave up our power to one another in the sense that I can't fix this. You can't fix this. We can't fix this. We need to find some external source, some external power, something that's going to allow us to get through this but we're going to get through this together. And at the moment that we kind of made that declaration, we had been staying next to a church and the bell started ringing. And if that wasn't some sort of universal sign that you, <laughs> you, you hit the bell, I don't know what was. So our spiritual growth has become such a focal point for us that we do now take time spiritually to connect every day, make that, I'm going to use the word God. We look at it as good orderly direction, not necessarily some overpower being, but the good orderly direction of what is in the divine truth of where we need to go with our lives comes from a place of groundedness, a place of truth, of compassion, from empathy, from patience, from forgiveness, from vulnerability, trust, forthcomingness. And yes, this sounds like a list because it is. This is my mm -hmm. list. This is my inventory that I've been doing as a result of attending CODA meetings for a year now. And I have found such strength in going to those meetings. And I don't necessarily believe in everything they say. Brian, I know that you've had some experience with a 12-step program based on listening to the podcast. One of the things that they say in there, and I really believe this, is that you can take what you like and leave the rest. And I go to those CODA meetings because there is a lot of things that I like. And there's a lot of stuff that's a bunch of crap that I don't care about and have no relation to. But I take from those meetings what serves me best. And I have the full support of D. 
and in my higher power that we have gone to a, we have come to a place where full circle one year now from that that declaration that we are more in love and more trusting and more understanding the blocks are down the walls are down the trust is there the understanding is there the the responsibility to one another the the ability to respond to one another that when those triggers come or when those those uh, emotions rise up in us, we are able to now take a breath, take a pause and relate to one another. So the relationship is now stronger than it ever has been. And I can only say it's because of my forthcoming or reaction, depending on how anyone wants to look at it. To me, it doesn't matter how it came. It came and we are at a place that we can actually be in a relationship together that we don't hold back. We fight better now. And I know that sounds weird to say, but we know how to fight now because we're not in defensive mode. We're not standing our ground and digging our heels in. The true empathy of knowing I can feel what I feel, therefore I can feel how you feel, and I don't have to put up a block in it. It feels great. It feels so great. This is making me cheer up. This is yeah, it's really, <laughs> really a lovely story. There's so, so much good stuff there. I do want to call out what you just said about empathy, because I think that's just a great way to, to describe what's happening here. You said that you've struggled with empathy as Brian has mm. all your life, but it's clear that both of you are extremely caring, feeling people. So it's not, you know, it's not like you had no empathy, but if you can't feel what you feel, yes, how are you going to feel what someone else is feeling? Like oh. if you can't handle your own emotion, how are you going to allow someone else to fully experience theirs and support them in, in, in that. I can definitely feel that in in, in hearing Brian's story because I, I felt, like, like I said at the outset, I feel like you guys are my friends because there's a relatability, kind of like watching that TV show. There's a relatability because hearing Brian's story and, and Brian, your vulnerability and your strength and, and courage to tell this story uh, has affected me in, in, a, in a, such a profound way that it know, I know that I'm not alone in how I'm thinking and how I'm feeling in my lack of certain ways that I know that I can actually hear your story and your recovery story that gives me strength and hope. Yeah, the empathy component is is such a big one that's in there that I know that I now can have that empathy because I've been shown the empathy from someone else. And I, I don't want to presume, but I can only assume, Brian, that you felt that from Stephanie that has allowed you to be able to come into your emotional state and awareness because you have someone who actually loves you for who you are. And I've got yes, that with absolutely. D. Yeah. And then, you know, like you were saying, being able to, to shift the way you communicate to where you're understanding yourself and you're open to the empathy. For me, a big part of that is recognizing when shame comes up, because I think that for me has been a huge source of my defensiveness. Or, you know, when I kind of find myself defaulting back to codependent behaviors, well, you know, now even, it's not like these things go away permanently, they get a lot easier. But yeah, defensiveness is a great signal that something's happening, you know, that maybe you're being severed again, something you know, you, you might you may be struggling with your empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, I know you guys have mentioned this before, and I actually have it sitting right next to me on my on my uh, side table here is the body keeps the score. Uh, a great book that you have recommended. Mm -hmm. The body does really give you that, that awareness, there's signals, there's clues, there's there's that tension of the body or the feel a little bit of a sweat coming on, like, cause you know, that the, the body's actually telling you something that it doesn't feel right. So I think that that resource is a great one for listeners to possibly jump on if they haven't done so already at your recommendation, I'm going to uh, second that motion. 
And just recently, as this week, I started listening to, uh, I'm probably going to get the name wrong. Is it Esther Perel? I think that's the one that you recommended, mm-hmm. Stephanie. I started listening to some of hers and some of the language that she has, I think is good. I think those resources are, are wonderful because I think the more you can seek outside of yourself, I mean, this is something that I learned a long time ago. If I want to try and hammer in a nail, I'm not going to grab a screwdriver, but if all I have is a screwdriver in my toolbox, I'm not going to be able to fix it. So the more tools I can put in a toolbox, the more I'm going to be equipped to handle anything that comes my way. And those tools are things like this podcast and literature and support groups and therapists and and perhaps a, a higher power or some sort of external source that gives you strength because it's so difficult to do this, this journey alone. Uh, it really mm-hmm. is. And I know you guys have mentioned this a number of times that interpersonal relationships are the foundation of what kind of can cause a codependency, but it's without those interpersonal relationships that you can't overcome it. It it takes a lot of courage to step out and actually have that relationship, whether it be a friendship or a co-worker or a romantic intimate relationship. If, If you're looking to overcome, or if I'm looking to overcome that type of struggle of codependency, I have to be in interpersonal relationships. A quotation I love from Mr. Perel actually is the quality of our relationships determine the quality of our lives. And when you don't learn how to have intimate, caring, connected relationships as a child, when that's not modeled for you and that's not given to you, yeah, I can see you want to gather as many tools and people and resources around you to figure that out. It's so complicated, but it's so important. Speaking of that, just to go circle back to, to your family of origin, where you weren't given those tools in order to form intimate, connected relationships, where in fact, the tools you were given, kind of as you were saying, were the wrong ones. Mm-hmm, definitely. You know, you needed hammers or screwdrivers and you were given like buzz saws. <laughs> How are you managing those relationships now, the, the relationships with your parents? Yeah. Instance? So, so having come to these new awarenesses now I, and having uh, a great therapist uh, help me kind of see Uh, interpersonal relationships. And she does have a great understanding of codependency. She has some codependency issues herself. So she's not only kind of preaching it, but she's also lived it. And I find that that kind of assistance is, is invaluable because someone who's actually lived it can actually give it to you straight from the horse's mouth. And she brought this concept to me of there's three types of plans from a relationship standpoint. There's plan A, plan B, and plan C. Plan A would be what would be, quote unquote, a normal relationship where you can share with someone, you can feel safe, you're okay, uh, there's mutual respect, there is a sharing that is open and honest. Plan A. Plan B would be a little bit more boundary-based where you don't fully feel safe, you hold back on what you do want to communicate because there's a fear that it might get used against you or twisted or turned. The amount of time that you spend is limited. The environment within which you spend it is controlled. It's not as free, but the relationship still does exist because there is a desire to actually still want to have communication with that particular individual. Plan C is literally cutting off, no communication, basically estrangement, nothing to do with them. And that comes with its own set of challenges as well. Where I'm at right now with both of my parents is plan B. 
Uh, I have not fully cut them off because I still see that there are some redeeming qualities in them. I feel their love. I feel their care for me. I have heard from both of them. Um, this might sound crazy, but they actually have finally separated after 45 years of marriage. It mm. finally got to the point where they had their separation. So I have a relationship with my mom whereby I don't want to talk to her about anything to do with my dad. So the dynamic of the family, the family of origin is very convoluted. So there's uh, the plan B is in place and it's there for, for me. It's not because I'm trying to change them or punish them. It's because it's, it's there to help me protect me to understand what conditions upon which I can be in that relationship to feel safe with my boundaries, to have a little bit of a disassociation with them and not tell them everything that's going on in my life. The relationship that I had with T and with M, my parents knew everything that was going on. My relationship with D, I respect D tremendously and she has asked me to keep our private life private. And I'm doing that because my parents don't need to know everything that's going on in my relationship. My, I, I don't know the quote exactly, so I'm probably going to misquote it, but there was Steve Harvey had mentioned, when you hold hands with your partner and your love, whoever that might be, and you hold hands, you create a circle and no one, no one gets in that circle, not even your mother. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me because for 52 years, my mother knew everything about my life. And now she knows very little about my life. And I can see how it affects her because she tries to get in on every little angle, but I've got this awareness about me that I don't have an obligation to tell her. I'm not codependent to her anymore. I have made that awareness that with my confidence and with my understanding in my own emotional intelligence of how I want to feel, I can not tell her everything that's going on. And I can have a relationship with her because of that. And the same goes with my dad. My dad, uh, like I said before, he was my coach. He, if, if, if anyone between my mother and father, my, my father has broken down in tears more over what's been going on. He has unfortunately some health concerns and he knows that his end of life is coming. So he's trying to atone and I can have some empathy and some compassion for him, but it still doesn't put me in a position to tell him everything that's going either because the trust of what they're going to do and how they're going to use it is they haven't changed. They are still who they are and their unfortunate lack of awareness of self. And it's only through my work of myself that I can see that in them. I can love them. I can have compassion for them. I can spend time with them, but it is in a very limited controlled environment so that I can feel safe. And that's that's where I'm at is with plan B. I like all of those plan A, plan B, plan C. I think yeah. that's great. And I think that's really how most of us navigate through our social spaces. Those are those are good buckets, right? We, we either want a real authentic relationship or we recognize that the relationship has to be limited and there needs to be, as you say, structure around it, or we don't want a relationship with, with that person. I can just think of all my relationships, including work relationships. You know, those are largely going to be in plan B. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe even some friendships are plan B. And then I have kind of a, a small group of people that are plan A and then, you know, a whole lot of people in plan C. But, that's, but I think what's interesting about family, what's challenging about family is the expectation and the larger cultural messages that your family is plan A. Yeah, no matter what. No matter what, your family you, is plan A. And that can be really hard, even with, for those of us who don't, say, struggle with codependency, to yeah. move a family member from plan A 
to plan B, let alone move one from plan B to plan C. Because the messages from within the family, from outside the family, can be so almost shame-based. Oh, yes. That that's a shameful thing to do, to move someone from plan A to plan B. Mm -hmm. It, It is. It's very, very, very challenging. And it's a daily mindfulness of why you're doing what you're doing. And in the end, it could be considered very selfish, to do what you're doing when you're selecting that kind of plan. But I, I look at it more from a self-centeredness and it's only because I'm centered, I'm aligned, I know who I am. So if you want to call me a self-centered person, I take that as a compliment because it is actually my knowing who I am that I can be centered in myself. I like that. And 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 I do like this plan B because that's pretty much where I found myself with my family too. And another piece that I found has become easier with being more intentional with the relationships is that I can actually show up for them more than I did before too. So I may have been showing up codependently, but now I feel like I'm just emotionally available because I know myself and I know the limitations of the relationship. I know them a little better. I can empathize with them and how they are the way they are. And I don't expect things from them. So yeah, I choose the relationship and then I can show up within that parameters of, of choosing that relationship. Yeah. It's a, it's a great space to be in. You actually, like me, have that awareness and it, it, that's what it is. It's an awareness and, and not just, you know, I'm just going to check out. I'm going to go spend time with my family and check out. I'm actually going to be yeah. present. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's totally what I, I found myself. It was like this comfortable checkout though. You know, I had my narrative for what my family meant and yeah. whatever was going on, like that more or less that narrative just stayed alive, but I had no idea of what was behind that narrative. And now you do. Yeah. And so do I. I think we're going to need to wrap this episode up, although I feel like we could keep talking to Chris all day. It's such inspirational story, Chris. And I, I can't tell you how much I love that this kind of one thing that you were carrying and hiding and feeling shame about, and that you offered it to this other person and, and she accepted it in the spirit in which you gave it to her. And it's transformed both of your lives. It's, it's really moving. And I'm tearing up again, just, just thinking about that moment. And I think a, a lot of people are going to take some hope and some inspiration from what you shared today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I guess, I guess in, 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 in my, in my way, um, I found my Stephanie like Brian did. I got my D. That's yeah, right. that's exactly what it is. This sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and and I want to thank you guys for for allowing me to share this story. It's it's, it's something that uh, I was excited about, nervous about. There is a vulnerability to put your your truth out to the world, and I can tell you that from the time of our correspondence, the the liberation of just knowing this is coming has built in me a big sense of relief and a big sense of anxiety at the same time. But now that we've actually had an opportunity to share with one another, I, I do hope that there is uh, the, the sharing of this will give others some hope that uh, it is something that will always be part of your life, but it doesn't have to define your life. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt this, this is a really great discussion. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, and guys. we hope people will join us for to hear from another codependent mind in future episodes.